Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 345 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today's sponsor is The Art Group. The Art Group is a publisher of my most recent book, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement, Cardinal and Provident. It's the only book that wraps up the most significant year in FCPA enforcement, really since 2004. It's available at the Art Group website, which is ark-group, arc-group.com. Today, I have back with me a great friend of the podcast, Michael Volkoff. He's the founder of the Volkoff Law Group, and he's also a part of the Everything Compliance Commentary Panel. Mike and I take a deep dive into two declinations which were issued in June of 2017, the Lindy Gas Declination and the CDM Smith case. I believe these are both superior results as both companies got complete declinations with disgorgement, meaning no fines or penalties. They did pay disgorgement. We take a deep dive into the facts and try to understand how the companies made it such a stunning comeback with the use of excellent outside counsel. The episode comes in at around 25 minutes. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox again, and back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report with one of the great friends of the podcast, Michael Volkoff, the founder of the Volkoff Law Group. Mike and I wanted to do a first half of the year wrap-up in the FCPA, and uh, fortunately, uh, or perhaps that's not the right verb uh, or adverb, uh, there's only a couple of things to really talk about. So we're going to focus on two declinations that came out in June the Lindy Gas case, and the CDM Smith declination. So, Mike, with that uh, introduction, uh, welcome. Tom, always good to uh, record with you, and always good to talk about the FCPA and compliance issues and enforcement issues. So, uh, thanks for inviting me. So, here we had uh, basically a couple of uh, DOJ declinations with disgorgement. And that was a new category that popped up for us, Mike, last fall uh, of settlements. But even though the written record, or at least the written record to the public in the form of the declination letters, was fairly brief, I thought that we got a fair amount of information that the compliance practitioner can use uh, in their uh, uh, compliance program and actually using it to benchmark where they might be. So... um, Anything, uh, let's, let's maybe start with Lindy Gas. Anything that really struck you about that case? Well, first off, I thought Lindy was important for a couple reasons. One was it was an acquisition uh, case where they acquired, uh, I guess it was, the assets of uh, Spectra Gases. And so in this, in the acquisition, it turned out that uh, Spectra Gases had paid certain bribes to uh, the National High Technology Center. These are government officials in the Republic of Georgia. And so I thought it was interesting to see uh, an act, yet again, another acquisition case where somebody fought a violation. And uh, so that, I thought that was interesting. The disgorgement of, I think it was over $7 million, and then there was a forfeiture of like $3 million, and maybe a little bit more altogether, $11 million. Um, but what I thought was interesting, again, is we see another uh, example of not just sort of 
bribery through here's money, give me a contract, but we see bribery again through uh, hidden equitable equity interests. And we've seen that sometimes, but I'm seeing it more and more in terms of risks and um, making here the NHTC officials, the government officials from Georgia, basically have like a 75% interest in this specific uh, project with uh, Spectra Gas, where Spectra Gas is like 25% of the process. So I thought the MO was kind of interesting. I thought, um, obviously, this is a case where, you know, Lynn came in and Lindy came in and, you know, met all the requirements for the pilot program. And the other interesting aspect, I think, is Lindy is not publicly traded, so DOJ is the one that did the sort of disgorgement. If it had been publicly uh, traded, it was a publicly held company, I bet you the, the DOJ would have declined and then the SEC would have gotten that disgorgement. But who knows? We don't, you know, we don't know. But I noticed these are private companies as well. So anyways, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but I think you know, true to form, it shows me at least that the pilot project is for real. The pilot pro- pilot program is for real, and that DOJ will, you know, hand out these uh, the benefit letters in the sense of resolving this case. But I don't know what it, what, what did you think? Well, Mike, uh, I guess kind of I took a little bit different read on the facts, and and so I'm going to go a little bit into the weeds because I thought the timeline was significant here. Lindy acquired Spectre Gas in October of 2006. So the next month, November 2006, Spectra purchased certain assets from the Republic of Georgia, one of which was this magic boron column that was used to produce boron gas. So when the corruption occurred, it wasn't Spectra, it was Lindy. You know, it wasn't them, it was us, because it was after the... um, Acquisition had occurred. Lindy had to know that Spectra was in negotiations to buy this boron column and these assets because it certainly didn't come come about within 30 days. So I think that that time frame, that tight time frame of, of one month or less between the time of the acquisition of Spectra by Lindy and then the acquisition of the assets from the National High Technology Center indicated to me that there was more going on there than um, perhaps was completely spelled out in the acquisition, excuse me, in the declination letter. The second thing was that you uh, really talked about was the vehicles to pay the bribes because Spectre created two companies uh, after they acquired the assets. One was to own the assets and then one was to manage or exploit the assets. And in both cases, uh, corrupt officials from the Republic of Georgia, not the state of Georgia, uh, were involved with the uh, uh, created entities so that they got their bribes were paid out through this corrupt uh, or, or through this these companies that were created to exploit and then administer the use of the boron column. For reasons completely unclear to me, one of those two companies was actually uh, incorporated in the United States. So there was clear U.S. jurisdiction, even though Lindy Gas is a German corporation and they're not listed on the U.S. stock exchange. So the separate and apart from the timeline issues, the bribery scheme, I thought, was 
worth us talking about and worth compliance practitioners studying because it indicated to me the really machinations uh, business folks can go through to create new entities um, and contract with new entities to uh, facilitate bribe payments. And that goes back to the, the most basic point of any FCPA training I've ever heard you put on, which is you got to know who you're doing business with. And you've got to know who your third parties are. Uh, here, you may needed to know who your customers were. And pretty clearly, there was no um, sufficient level of due diligence on the partners of um, Lindy and the Spectre Gas entities, which were created to both exploit and administer this boron column. So it, it almost goes back to the most basic training uh, you and I did 10 years ago, which is due diligence and know who you're doing business with, and that uh, compliance has to have some visibility into all of this, even if it's in the form of comp company internal controls, which would require um, business justification, uh, questionnaire due diligence, and then an evaluation of that due diligence for any entity that uh, Lindy creates or does business through. So I thought it was a really good example of a lesson to be learned for the compliance practitioner on all of those, in addition to the M&A merger and acquisition issues that uh, you touched on as well. So I, I thought it packed a lot in. Um, I, I thought the conduct by Lindy uh, was probably more serious than, than um, really the written record may have reflected. But having said that, I want to... Um, certainly congratulate and, and, and give a kudos to Lindy's counsel because at some point they recognized, Houston, we've got a problem here and we've got a big problem. Uh, and they took the steps necessary to uh, uh, resolve the problem well enough that the Department of Justice declined to prosecute. Now, they did have to repay their ill-gotten gains in the profit disgorgement category, but clearly they extensively cooperated with the government uh, at least clearly in my mind, clearly they remediated. They had top-notch, and I mean top-notch FCPA counsel, Lucinda Lowe from Steptoe. Doesn't get much better than that. And they were able to make as good a comeback, basically, as you could, I think, uh, by receiving this declination. So at some point, um, somebody recognized we've got a problem here, and this problem has to be resolved in a very professional way with very professional FCPA counsel. Well, you know, Tom, you raised a number of good points. Let me jump on a few of those. One is, uh, it's good, I mean, thanks for correcting the timing of the acquisition. And I think that's a really important point because what that means is there's no doubt that in the due diligence before this acquisition occurred, that they had to have known about this relationship with the NHCC officials. And, you know, who knows how it was ultimately carried out in terms of whether there were Spectre Gas people who came with the deal, you know, with the asset deal or not. But somebody, you know, it displays to me, you know, an issue that you and I have been talking a lot about, which is uh, integration after the, after the closing. Uh, and, you know, here it's very clear that the due diligence or whatever was done in integrating a high-risk operation in Georgia that really, uh, you know, there were a lot of questions, which is, 
like you say, the machinations here. Why why are we structuring the deal like this? Why are these companies being created like this? What's the purpose and who are the real owners of the interest here? Who are the beneficial owners of uh, the deal that we're putting together? I also agree with you, and I think that had this not, if this had been a publicly traded company, both the SEC and the uh, DOJ looking at it, I think they were looking at upwards of a you know forty to fifty million dollar settlement at a minimum in a case like this. Um, I think what it also highlights is if you're a private company, if you're a privately owned company, and you're not, you don't have SEC jurisdiction. There's even more reason to take advantage of the pilot program um, because you're not going to get a double whammy. Uh, and if you can get into the pilot program and meet the requirements, I think your threshold should be a little bit higher in terms of, you know, how bad the conduct may have been. Uh, and you're worried about the DOJ is going to go in. Go in and try to get the benefits here of the uh, program, you know, be clear with your client what's going to be involved and it's going to cost a lot of money but you're going to ultimately there's no doubt that Lindy may have spent a lot on accountants and lawyers but in the end I'm sure they save more money than uh, by doing so that's that's sort of my feeling and it, you're right the council uh, we have to give credit to I think it's Mr. Best was on that case as well who I've worked with in another case not the simple well but both of them are really a dynamic team in the uh, FCPA space. So it's a very good, very good lawyering and a very good result, I would think. Clients should be happy. So, Mike, the second declination, which came out in June, involved a, a company from Boston called CDM Smith. And here it was the company's India operations acted corruptly in paying bribes to employees of uh, the National Highways Authority of India, which is the country's state-owned highway management agency. And the bribes uh, paid were uh, fairly pedestrian, reported to be 2 to 4% uh, to of contract prices and paid through our old friend fraudulent subcontractors who provided no actual services and understood the payments were meant solely to benefit the um, officials who were bribed. Um, so, um, really the thing I would note there is that, um, the payments were through subcontractors and we often, both of us are often questioned about how far down the chain do we have to, as a company, uh, do due diligence on the, the people directly in our chain who are helping us do business, i.e. subcontractors. Well, if a subcontractor is not doing any real work or indeed any work, uh, that's a pretty big red flag. And here we had the uh, traditional way of funding bribes. But I think it's a good point to recall that you have to look at your subcontractors uh, uh, who are on the contracting side, not simply on the sales side of things. And you have to do an appropriate level of due diligence. But more importantly, and what CDM brought home to me was you've got to manage that relationship after the contract signed. If you've got a contractor or a subcontractor who's not, not providing any services, uh, somebody needs to pick that up. There needs to be some controls around that and some verification and testing of those controls going, going forward. So um, uh, I thought that was a, a pretty good lesson. We also had a somewhat uh, a cryptic statement that all senior management at CDM Smith India uh, were aware of the bribes paid uh, for the contracts and approved or participated in the misconduct. Yet, even with uh, what seeing here of um, 
senior management involvement, at least at the subsidiary level. Once again, we had, uh, I thought, a second superior result. Uh, uh, Lindy, excuse me, CDM Smith got a uh, declination with disgorgement. They disgorged their profits and uh, actually got a payout uh, of um, on that. Uh, that. Once again, they had, uh, I think, really uh, top-notch FCPA counsel, Nat Edmonds, who uh, was as, um, chair of the litigation section at Paul Hastings, but more importantly, formerly head of the FCPA unit at the DOJ. And if you've ever heard Nat talk, you know uh, he's a uh, very well uh, spoken, very well respected, uh, certainly white collar practitioner. So uh, some lessons here um, as well. So what were your thoughts on CDM Smith? Um, I think, um, you know, I share all of your, your comments. Um, I also think that, um, again, we have a private company uh, here who not publicly traded and, again, um, you know, made the decision to go into the DOJ. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, I think it was about a million dollars in bribes uh, that were supposedly paid. But uh, it's funny about this discussion with subcontractors, because just yesterday I got a call from a person you and I know very well who's been in this, the due diligence space for years, and he called me and said, you know, uh, I just want to double check something. I've got a client who's saying, I don't have to do due diligence on my subcontractors because they're not representing me uh, before the, the particular government officials or interacting with the government. And it turns out, uh, and I told them my view, which is just like what you said, that um, we've got to know everybody that we're bringing to the table in a, in a government contract, even though they may not deal with the, the government directly or interact with them, because you can always have a hidden government interest. You could have, and you know, we've seen that scheme many times where a government official takes an interest in a a related company connected to the contract, let's say, recipient. So, uh, and he said, yeah, I just needed a, a check on that. But it tells you that, you know, we still get some of those types of questions. And here we had subcontractors uh, who obviously uh, weren't providing any services and were just taking the payments to give to the officials. But the other thing that that points out to me, again, is the focus that we've had in uh, on in the in the third party risk management, which is on invoice to payment uh, processes, and people are I, I think the the perception out there is people are doing more on sort of enlisting people who pay bills within your company to you know become aware of let's look at the invoice let's verify the services somehow let's talk to somebody in the company who knows what the services may have been. And make sure that these are legitimate services or these are not before we send out the money. Um, and this is a great sort of natural partner for uh, two compliance officers to, you know, uh, empower their accounts payable people to, um, and their vendors, or the people who manage your vendors, and uh, empower them as sort of a second line of defense uh, and somebody who can sort of alert you to things. So I thought... Um, this highlighted at least the, the you know, invoice to payment issue as well as the, uh, the subcontractor issue. And it's interesting that we still get questions about how far to do due diligence. 
Um, and I always say, look, you know, there are risks and then there, uh, there's always reputational risks for who you deal with. Um, here we have legal and reputational risks uh, with these uh, subcontractors, and they should have been subjected to full due diligence and then risk monitoring afterwards. But again, another great result, another, you know, frankly, success for the DOJ program. I, you know, I know they're, they're continuing the program and they're supposed to be assessing it, and it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what happens as this program, you know, chugs along under the Trump administration. So we'll see. But uh, these are two interesting cases, a lot more than just the, you know, simple letters that we got. Right. So, Mike, uh, you, you touched on this a little bit with Lindy, but how do these two cases really affect your thinking about whether a company should self-disclose or not? Because I've heard you in the past say, under certain circumstances, if a, a problem was really ring-fenced in one geographic area and could be adequately remedied, you might consider uh, not disclosing or at least advising a company not to disclose. Do, do these either of these two uh, declinations change that calculus in any way? I I think it does because I I think if you can get into the pilot, if you're a privately owned company, if you can get into the pilot program and that's your only standard and you're dealing with DOJ, um, I tend to, I tend to, my experience has been uh, with DOJ, that they're fairly reasonable. You know, I'm not going to say every time, but uh, and if I don't have the SEC to balance at the same time, I think there are more benefits to the pilot program for a private company than for a public company. Um, and so, you know, I think that that in these cases, I I don't know what the lawyers knew at the time. But I think they clearly made the right decision. I wouldn't have approached this um, with, a, you know, let's fix the situation and then keep our mouths shut. Um, I think these companies probably made the right decision in both of these to get under the pilot program. And, uh, I mean, I know they probably spent a lot in legal fees and accounting fees, but I'm telling you, they probably saved, saved money in the long run. I don't. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, what's been your feedback in terms of, you know, what are you hearing? What do you experience in terms of these types of cases, you know, where you don't have the SEC involved or you can avoid the SEC? So I've probably been a little more aggressive on uh, recommending uh, self-disclosure than you have in the past, Mike. So I see these as, as additional reasons uh, to self-disclose. And the uh, frankly, I, I found the results very, very um, superior for, I mean, you spoke to the DOJs and the pilot programs, uh, uh, use of these results. I found these very um, useful for the corporate corporations to consider because one of the, uh, if not criticism, critiques of the pilot program has been that companies still do not know what the results are going to be uh, if they don't if they self-disclose, and I think clearly the DOJ is communicating in these two uh, declinations with disgorgement that if you do come in and meet the four requirements of the pilot program, uh, you're going to have to give the money back, but that's going to be it, and um, no no monitor, um, you know nothing. Uh, the expenses uh, going forward will be for your ongoing remediation uh, uh, that you've come up with, 
And I think this uh, really is uh, something that uh, the corporate world needs to uh, take up, uh, uh, sit up and take notice of, because I think it's a really positive step forward for the criticisms that uh, uh came out last year that there wasn't enough credit for really meeting these four components. I think uh, these two declinations have answered those, those critiques and criticisms. Yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. Uh, I also, I also have noted this like uh, in the first six months here, uh, or we've seen a lot of declinations as well uh, coming out from DOJ and the SEC. Um, And I, I don't know what that is. I don't know. I mean, we've had no more de- declinations with discouragement like this, but um, it seems to me like, uh, you know, DOJ is trying to sort of clear the decks. Um, but on the other hand, the other trend that I've seen is um, there are a lot more cases getting opened. Um, new cases are coming in uh, and uh, sort of disclosures. So, you know, I think in the end, uh, I'll, I'll bet you, I mean, just my gut tells me that the pilot program has resulted in more companies coming in and making disclosures. Um, you know, I can't, I don't have data to verify that, but it, the fact that we've seen uh, more declinations and then we've seen more an increase in uh, disclosures means that you know, DOJ's purpose in setting this up, which was to increase the voluntary disclosures and provide a real carrot for, uh, for people, um, it may be working. And, uh, and I think, like, you know, people, like your analysis has definitely pushed that along in there. Uh, a lot of uh, lawyers who also are pushing that along as well. So I... That's, I mean, these are really, they're, they're more, these two cases are more significant than we think in the overall sort of corporate calculation of when do we go to the government or when do we not. And so, I, I, you know, I think they're, they're really important for, for this entire discussion we're having because that's uh, never an easy discussion or decision by a corporation, uh, always fraught with peril and certainly uh, one that's going to cost you some money. So uh, I really feel... Uh, uh, greater comfort from uh, the DOJ uh, with these <clears throat> declinations with disgorgement uh, that they are really going to take a very hard look at uh, zeroing out or giving a full declination beyond what was uh, laid out in the written portion of the pilot program going forward. So I, I would really congratulate the DOJ for, for uh, going forward with this. But I would also once again reiterate um, tip of the hat to both Lindy and CDM Smith uh, they didn't get this results by sitting sitting on their duffs doing nothing. They they went out and met the four um, prongs of the pilot program, and they they did self disclose and they did have those uh, um, take those actions which the DOJ demanded. And and maybe that all ties back into your point, Mike, that you found the uh, the Justice Department to be reasonable uh, when you uh, negotiated with them in a reasonable manner. So maybe that's uh, at the end of the day one of the things we can take away from this. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think you have to consider your audience, and uh, that's part of it. And, you know, also, let's remember these facts were pretty, you know, they're self-contained to one country. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, you have 10 countries that you're coming in and trying to, you know, fit within the pilot program. Um, you know, 10 countries of misconduct. So I think that's another 
you know, the facts are not great, but the, but it is limited to one country. So that at least gives you a story to tell, you know, in that sense. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near uh, near the end of our time, but uh, I was wondering if anybody wanted to follow up with you. Uh, how, uh, could they reach you? And if so, uh, perhaps uh, what, how would they email sure. you? Uh, email me at uh, mvolkov, V-O-L-K-O-V, as in Victor, at volkovlaw, all one word, dot com. Uh, also, you can follow my blog, uh, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and, uh, and you can call me at 240 505 1992. Always there, always available. Mike, so thanks, Tom. It's great, great, uh, great to talk with you and have a terrific weekend. And thanks to everybody. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help us to get out the word about the longest running podcast in compliance. As I indicated on the start of the show, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, which I've recently founded. This includes the following podcasts, Everything Compliance, the Top Compliance Roundtable Podcast, Across the Board, a podcast on corporate governance and risk. This week in FCPA, where Jay Rosen and I wrap up uh, the FCPA and compliance-related events for the week, Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive into a compliance-related subject. The international edition of the Compliance Report, where I talk to an international compliance practitioner. And finally, my signature daily series on one month to a better compliance program, where each month I take a deep dive into one topic around what constitutes a best practice compliance program. This month, I'm taking a deep dive into continuous improvement. And this month's sponsor for one month to more effective continuous improvement is Affiliated Monitors. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Once again, this is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>